invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, to the book of Jude. We're going to read the entirety of this book this morning, just to keep a reference point in what our study has been going through, as we're going to be backing up a little bit this morning. The Epistle of Jude, in the New King James Version, as I customarily read from. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these have given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also, these dreamers defile the flesh, they reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them! For they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam, for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, and on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. And we derived that from one of our base passages for that was Matthew 22. And I want to return there this week as we finish up talking about having spots and blemishes in our feasts. And so we find that whether Jude had this parable and derived some of that from this uh, we certainly see a connection between the description of who are the called and the wedding feast. And we're going to transition this to the wedding feast of the Lamb 
the wedding supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, as we look towards our future, that in the midst of our love feast, we're not only talking about what Christ did for us in the past, we're going to discuss that this morning as well as we get into the specifics of the communion table. We also talk about his work in our midst presently as we fellowship and share the love of God with one another. And we've discussed that as well as part of the love feast activities that we are here to engage in that, to demonstrate that agape, that, that unconditional commitment one to another that we only have because we have it from God. And so we have our present represented there in the love feast and the events surrounding it. And then, of course, we have the future. And so we're going to talk about all of those, focusing mostly on the future facets of that and looking forward to a time when the other facets won't be necessary because we will have God's presence, Christ's presence before us. Before we get into some of these passages in Matthew and Corinthians, Revelation. Let's go, Lord, in prayer together. Lord God, we do thank you for your word before us. And Lord, our prayers that you might grant skill in our handling of it this hour. Not to our glory, but to the benefit of your saints that we might grow in your grace and knowledge and our faith that we might have unity. We might be walking in obedience. That it might be evident before you and your holy angels and your people and the world that it is our desire to fulfill your word. Not just on Sunday mornings, but in every part of our life. In every season, every hour. And Lord, we thank you for your Spirit's power to enable us in this regard. And we pray that we might be reminded today to press on. In Christ's name, amen. Matthew 22 describes for us a wedding feast. And this is a parable, but a very powerful one. And it gives us a great illustration, if you will, to uh, connect to the love feast passage, I've somewhat avoided because I know I ex- used it extensively when we talked about who are the called in uh, the early portion of Jude. And I want to take you back there to Matthew 22 because I want you to uh, look at the other facets of the wedding feast and how important it is that we recognize the value of maintaining purity in the midst of it. So let's go ahead and read these 14 verses or so. It says, And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. We have focused in on an aspect of the willingness to come into the feast, but that willingness alone was not sufficient. That is, it's not just because we want to be at the wedding feast of God, but that there was another facet, and it's that other facet I'm going to emphasize today, 
uh, and that is that willingness is certainly one requirement to be willing to come. But we find that these spots, these blemishes, these hidden rocks in our love feasts are willing to come. But they are not qualified to be there. And here Jesus identifies that the king, when he arrives at the wedding feast, not only wants you to be willing, but he wants you to be properly clothed. He wants you to be properly attired, that you are prepared for what you are engaging in. And whether that preparation comes at your expense or someone else's expense is not really covered. It's really talking about the whole idea that you need to have upon you a righteousness that is distinct, that is discerning, that is, uh, makes it obvious that you are not in your daily life, that you are distinct, you are separate, uh, that, that these, these, this change of clothing is unique. It is something set aside for something special. And so you put off the, the everyday stuff and you put on these special wedding garments. Even though you were invited out in the highways and byways, still an expectation that willingness is not just all there is. There has to be more. And so we find that just because someone wants to doesn't mean that they may. And in fact, when you look at the end result of these two, both the ones who were unwilling to come and the disaster that came upon them because of the wrath of the king, rightly attributed. The wrath of the king is righteous, it's just. And we're going to see that played out in Revelation, aren't you? The wrath of the king is going to come upon the nations. Why? Because they deserve it. Because they were not willing to receive God, his servants, the prophets, his word, his gospel, nor his son. They did not desire or be interested in his invitation. And it is a genuine invitation to all. And so they are deserving of the wrath of the king being poured out upon them through his army. But for that one individual who was willing to come <laughs> and sit among the wedding guests, his end, described here, is a frightening one. He says, oh, I'm not just going to destroy you. I'm going to cast you into outer darkness and you're going to have weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the evidence there is that this will be continuously going on. That there is, a, again, a very righteous judgment. But this is very different from the wrath that we described. This is a judgment that is in keeping with his disregard for the requirements of God for his presence a disregard for the requirements of God to be in his presence. And essentially, this is what these hidden reefs are doing. These spots, these blemishes, while they sit amongst you, have within their heart a disregard, not just for you, not just for the unity of the of the body of Christ. Um, they have a disregard for the requirements of God for being in his presence. And this is critical to our understanding of why these spots and blemishes are so heinous that God says, I'm not giving you a second chance. You had not, no response. He asked the question. The man was speechless. It says, bind him, hand and foot. He has no chance of escape. He is going to be put into this judgment and it is permanent, binding, and righteous. Because you had disregard for the requirements to be in God's presence. So I'm going to ask a question this morning and why I think the love feast that uh, has been so disregarded in our 
Christian circles. I know that some still hold it. We were involved in college in a brethren church, and twice a year they had their love foot washing, love feast, and communion service that we were permitted to participate in. I often wondered if they thought of us as a blemish on their love feast, but um, since we were Baptists and they were brethren, but uh, they let us in. It was a great experience, and uh, some godly people there really enjoyed that. But by and large, um, we have disregarded that love feast, and yes, foot washing was almost always associated with it, as well as the communion tables we're going to discuss. But one of the benefits of it is that you don't come to that unprepared. You don't come to that not having some thought into the requirements that, it, that you must meet to participate in that. It's not something you go, oh, oh, we're doing that tonight. It was anticipated, and the preparations were extensive. And there is value there in worship, in the preparation. And I just want to challenge us a little bit that two weeks ago we had a love feast uh, how many of you thought about that during the week prior and recognized that there were preparations that had to be made, whether it's just for your own house and you had to figure out what you were going to serve, how are you going to bring it, how are you going to keep it warm, how are you going to get it warm? You had those preparations in your mind pretty much for that week because I sprang it on you the Sunday before. So for that week, did that enter your thoughts at all during the week? That's not a rhetorical question. You can answer me. Sure, you came much better prepared to worship than you did probably this week. Because frankly, we've made church such a passive event that you can show up and be totally unprepared and then you wonder why the Holy Spirit didn't do much in your life when all the preparation has landed on a handful of people. Three or four Sunday school teachers, a pastor, and the extent of our preparation for this wonderful, <laughs> rare event of one hour out of a week's time, um, we are unprepared for. And God says, how can you worship me without preparation? And I think one of the wonders of the Old Testament was that it was almost impossible to do that because of the extensiveness of the preparations required to participate in the once a week meal called the Sabbath meal, and in the sacrifices and in the feasts, you had to make extraordinary preparations. You might say, well, that all landed on the shoulders of the wives and mothers. Not entirely, no. No, for the sacrifices and all of the preparations of the lambs or whatever was required for the feasts of uh, the unleavened bread, the feast of unleavened bread, the feast of tabernacle, all of these feasts, uh, were laid out, and they required great preparation. I would contend with you that that preparation is worship and perhaps is more vital to worship than we could ever realize. And when we have simplified it and discarded it and made worship something that I am very passively involved in until the actual service starts, and now I have a chance to sing, uh, and that is a part where you get to actively participate, and hopefully listening to a sermon is an activity for you and not passive, where it's just kind of flowing over you. I've, been, I, I've sat where you've sat, and I know that there are some services that that's exactly what it was. I was just passive, and it didn't affect me. I wasn't engaging with the preacher, uh, and... Uh, for whatever reason, and distraction or fatigue or whatever, all of it boils down to I wasn't prepared. I didn't prepare my heart. I didn't prepare my mind. I didn't prepare my life to make that a significant event. And when we come through and we read in the Old Testament all of the 
requirements that they had to go through to worship God at the temple and, and week by week and in the feasts. You go, man, that's a lot to keep track of. Yes, and why is it so valuable? It's because it focuses your attention over an extended period of time on the preparations to meet the requirements to be before your Lord. And when we extract all of that, and, and we're okay with the liberty that we have, that we're not under the law, but we've also lost the, the activity of worship. And when you look in, in Acts chapter 2, and you look through Corinthians, you look through Romans, you, you look at the church and its activity, you see that they were constant at it. And it is no mistake, we get to Hebrews 11, and what is faith? Is faith is demonstrated by activity. By faith, they did things. And as soon as we make worship a passive thing that one or two people lead us and we just sit here and didn't prepare ourselves, didn't prepare anything, uh, maybe we took a shower and got special clothes on, maybe we didn't. We don't even do that much anymore. And so there's a little preparation and then we wonder why the Holy Spirit doesn't do much. What have you attributed, contributed what have you contributed to this relationship? Should God applaud you that you're present? When you look at what was required of his people and, and the, the significance of it and, and the feasting and, and all the preparation, that is worship. And because our society has dismissed that as unimportant, the role of the home and a well-prepared, well cared for, well-trained, well-run home. Because we've diminished that importance, we have diminished what God considers to be one of the more powerful parts of preparation for worship, to put on the right garments. Now, I understand that this parable is talking about the righteousness of Christ. We preached through that extensively. We talked about the call to the chosen that you must have me clothed in the righteousness of Christ, the wedding garments. We're going to get to that here shortly. Um, but when it comes to our worship, why is it so valuable to not lose track of these facets? Is because, yes, there are a lot of work. It took a lot more work two weeks ago to come to church, didn't it? It did. I mean, you got things to think about. And. What you're thinking about, hopefully, isn't fretting and worrying over whether your certain meal that you decided to bring was tasty or not, or was burnt or not, um, but the fact that we are gathering together to worship. I have the privilege as my job to prepare sermons multiple week, and myself and uh, other ministries throughout the week, Clean World Life Clubs, and I uh, get to sit down and do all those preparations, and, and they are valuable. No, they are invaluable to my experience on Sunday morning. So the sermons are much more significant to me, not just because I'm the giver of them, but because I prepared for them. I have considered the passage of the text. I've, I, I'm, I'm throughout the week considering the songs and, and the, and the uh, text to use and the, and the um, way to deliver that in a manner that, that is thoughtful and yet uh, lively enough to keep people's attentions. And so it's invaluable to my worship is my preparations. When we come and we are unprepared, we just show up and we are the passive element, no wonder we just think worship is dull and boring. We didn't even prepare ourselves enough by getting a good night's sleep the night before so we could be bright and shining on Sunday morning. Next week you'll have an extra hour. Change the clocks next week, so you get an extra hour next week. No, you'll lose an hour. Fall back. No, you 
Oh, nice job. It's all very confusing. I don't know why we do it. We should just stay in daylight savings time. Oh, that we would prepare ourselves and take the time to begin considering and preparing our family and our lives, our personal lives, so that Sunday morning is a joy and not a rush to get there on time. And that's the extent of our preparation for worship. I love the fact that throughout our entire married life, including with four children that were six and under, um, my wife made all the preparations for Sunday morning on Saturday. The kids were bathed, the clothes were laid out, everything's ready. So Sunday morning, bam, you're up and ready and go, and there's no issues. That was worship. Not just Sunday morning getting up and ready. Saturday night was worship. It was preparation day. And I love that our Lord had communion on preparation day. You see, the Passover is the biggest event in their calendar of the Jews. And on preparation day, it was such a big day, you had to have a preparation day. Um, I love my, again, my wife took off Thursday last week to prepare for the ladies' fellow, ladies' retreat. She didn't want to have to work the day before. That doesn't mean she did all of her notes and studying on Thursday to teach you guys Friday morning. She's been doing that for weeks and weeks. Oh, that we would understand the value of the preparation. That it's not Thanksgiving dinner that may be the greatest aspect of worship, but the preparation for it. Not just the food, but the people our hearts and minds, that, and that's why we have soup and salad. Let's just make this a week of thanksgiving. Let's prepare ourselves now. Let's enter into this state of gratitude that maybe I have lost track of over the year, and now in, for this week, from the Sunday soup and salad to the Thursday big feast, that we focus our attention and prepare ourselves to truly worship together. Oh, that we would have be prepared to be in God's presence. This man was unprepared. He was badly clothed. And therefore he was thrown out. And so while we are ready to condemn the spots in our love feast as not regarding the requirements of God to come into his presence, please recognize that too many times we are more like them than not because we are disregarding any preparation upon our hearts, our minds, our lives, our schedules to prepare us to come into God's presence as a body on Sunday morning or whenever it is, Sunday night, um, Thursday, whatever, we get together. And so we are going to take great care. Now, we're going to talk about the other facets of the love feast. The love feast in, in, invariably back in the day in the early church involved a foot washing and again built off of the instruction of Jesus that as I have washed your feet you should wash one another's feet you should be serving one another in this very humbling fashion that you should be um, doing this in preparation for the love feast together which is a demonstration that I consider and value others better than myself Philippians chapter 2 and that act of service, again, we have lost track of, just as we lost track of the love feast. Isn't it interesting that we just lose track of the, the love feast and the, and the, the love and the humility? <laughs> they seem to be lost together many times of this humble service. This isn't for my aggrandizement. There is nothing grand in getting down and taking care of someone's feet, especially if they've traveled a distance to your place in sandals on dusty roads. It is a benefit, a necessary benefit that most people as slaves do. And Jesus says, no, I want you to do it to each other. Jesus says, I'm going to do it to you. I'm going to get down on my hands and knees with a basin and a towel, and I'm going to wash each one of your feet. And of course, Peter, the 
extremists love wash me all. I says, no, you're not dirty everywhere, just your feet. It's, it, there's a utility to it. You might say, well, we don't need to require that utility anymore. And, and perhaps that is somewhat true, but there are still facets of service that we need to be engaged in, but we aren't even looking for those. Most people are coming to church seeing what they can get instead of how they can give. How can I serve? How can I benefit? How can, and even in very utilitarian ways, how can I make it easier for you to come in? How can I serve you? The spot in the love feast will never think like that. Because remember, he's only there to serve himself. And again, we find ourselves on the wrong end of this stick too. That too often we come in with the same attitude as the spots and blemishes and hidden rocks than we are about the genuine love feast that comes in and says, I'm here to serve others. I'm here for their benefit. All of my preparations are for you. And everyone who has prepared a very good meal recognizes that, that I put all this effort and energy into it so that you could enjoy this wonderful meal. And it wouldn't be so bad if you pat me on back for that. And, and that's our attitude most of the time. But in this sphere, we want the glory to go to God. Don't. Glorify me, glorify the Lord. You can thank the Lord for this service, for this benefit. And so we find that, again, we are too much on the, on the end of the spot and blemish to the point that maybe most of our churches are filled more with hidden rocks and reefs and blemishes and spots than they are of the real article. If we all come in just interested in our, me and mine, And this was the case in Corinth, and I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians. We looked here to talk about the meat offered to idols last week, and that it is a concern, and that it, it does set a precedent for us. But what we also recognize is that this whole passage that really started um, back here in, in really 9, but 10 and following, uh, is, is centered in chapter 11, uh, verse 17 and following on another facet of the love feast. So you had a foot washing before, you have a love feast together, and it would usually, if not always, culminate in partaking of the Lord's table. That is of communion. And so it is appropriate that Paul here, in the midst of talking about your food and your public eating habits of whether if you're concerned about your weaker brother and things like that, he, he reiterates that again in Romans. Uh, we come to this, and here he talks about uh, the uh, furtherance of this love feast, the conclusion of it, if you will. Verse 17, now given these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. That there is a way to come together in a love feast and be destroying the unity of the church rather than strengthening it, to destroying the righteousness in the church. He says, verse 18, first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place as not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk, what, do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? I, shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Many have taken this text and said, well, that's why we got rid of the love feast, because Paul says it's better for us to eat at home and then come together. Um, no, what he said was, shame on you, that you can't figure out that all of you should have equal access in a feast to food that you're going to bring your table setting, lay it out before you, here's my food. Did you bring any food? It's not like, you know, lunch at work. You know, here's what my wife packed me, or here's what my, my husband packed me, here's what I packed myself, you know, and this person take you. You remember the kid at school that had, like, the spectacular lunch every lunch? I had my peanut butter sandwich, no jelly, just peanut butter, because I don't eat jelly. And 
sometimes it was a squash peanut butter sandwich because somehow the thermos always rolled on top of it. And here comes this kid, and he's always got, and his thing is emptying out, and he's got this array of food coming out of, I don't know how it all fit in that little Charlie Brown box. You know, that's back when we had little lunch boxes. They were metal, and they had little thermoses in it. You, how many remember that? How many of you still have one? How sad. <laughs> I don't either. Um, I didn't have Charlie Brown either. I, I'm not sure what I had. I might have had one. No, mine was way before Star Wars. That was, no. But it wasn't like Flash Gordon either, so don't, I'm right in the middle. And you sit there and you're eating your peanut butter, jelly, peanut butter, no jelly, sandwich, and watching this kid, and it's like, oh. And he had to have, you know, all the hostess cakes. You know, I mean, I had maybe a cookie or two that my mom burnt or something. It wasn't that bad. My wife, my mom was a good cook. So, and he had the oatmeal cream pies. Oh, I loved oatmeal cream pies, but I never got very many. And now I can't eat them because I got hold of a whole box of oatmeal cream pies once when I was a young man and ate them all and got ill. So now I can't eat them. Like, they just... Is that what church is like? No. That was the shame. We don't kill the love feast because we don't know how to do it. Paul, you're saying, this is to your shame. And if it's all about you having a feast and this person having, you know, bread and water, stay at home. If you don't have enough compassion for one another to serve one another so that you have an equal feast, and remember what the early church was like, it says no one considered his things as his own. They shared everything equally. That was one of the powerful declarations to the world of the love of God in the church. No one considered his stuff his own stuff. They shared things equally. Paul says, this is to your shame. And then he goes on. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This, do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. I would contend with you that when he talks about an unworthy manner, he is not just referring to the fact that you have come and made your brother in Christ sit there hungry, watch you eat a feast. Well, he had bread and water at best, but it is much more significant than that, that it even goes back that you have been disregarding the requirements of coming into God's presence. For if you do not have love for one another, the love of God is not in you, John says. This is the concern of Paul here. Have you offended your brethren by going out there not caring whether he sees you eat meat offered to the idols, that you actually sat there and ate your great bountiful meal while you knew he was hungry and, and needing it uh, more than you did? Uh, <laughs> that this is what he was concerned about. And so you're supposed to examine ourselves so that we can eat of the bread and drink of the cup in a worthy fashion. For we must recognize the Lord's body. This is discerning the Lord's body. That here you are celebrating a sacrifice of love. That's what the communion is. We are celebrating the sacrifice of God's love. His sacrifice of his son on Calvary's cross. Shedding his blood. Having his body broken open for us. 
How can you possibly celebrate his loving sacrifice when you treat one another this way? How unworthy can that be? And so the culmination of the love feast, just as we had two weeks ago, is the communion table. And again, we have taught this passage. We teach it extensively uh, whenever, not, not extensively, but as we come to it. And in this context, we need to teach about this. That we are here commemorating. We are here remembering the past. Here is what God has done for us. This is why here in the future I can humble myself and meet your needs. I can humble myself and prepare food for your consumption without having to be thanked for it. I don't need your pats on the back. I don't need you to ask me the recipe. I don't need any of that. All I want is to meet your needs because God has met my need. I can serve you today because Christ served me yesterday. Christ's sacrifice for us in the past. I caught that just as you all did because all your eyes went up because I was loud and the mic was soft. And so communion is a commemoration. We are remembering. And Paul reiterates this. So we are remembering Christ. We are remembering that after supper, he talked about his blood that would be shed, and now we participate in it, remembering that his blood has been shed for us. And so we have wrapped up in this wonderful love feast the present, the past, and the future. We're going to get to, if I have time. Uh, but first, we're going to talk about this past, because I'm not just humbling myself before you, because I'm a nice guy or because it's our tradition. I'm not participating in this love feast because Pastor announced and I have to do this. We are doing this as a commemoration, as a remembrance of the past that what Christ did for me, that he left heaven's glory, that he did that whole manger scene for me. Can you imagine how humiliating that is? For well, the one who was Lord of all the earth, who created all that is to come and have to be carried around by the man and a woman and drug here and there and, and fed and had his diaper changed. That's how much God humbled himself. And that wasn't the worst of it. He became sin for us on the cross. You can't get any lower. For, for the first time, God couldn't look at his own son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We are commemorating a spectacular act of humility and love. And so it is incredibly significant and important to be included at the conclusion of a love feast supper. For the foot washing, the humbling could not happen. The love feast could not happen and will not happen, not genuinely, without the love of God and his sacrifice having already happened. Why are these men spots in your love feast? Because they have dis regarded the requirements to come into God's presence. When we partake of communion, we are not bringing any of that into us. We are commemorating what has already happened. The Catholics have their transubstantiation, the Reformers had their consubstantiation, and they tried to overblow this it's kind of interesting we disregard the first two elements of the first two facets of the love feast and then we then we make the last one more than it was supposed to be it is an opportunity to commemorate that which enables us to now humble ourselves one to another to serve one another to love one another because we are the recipients of the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord and his example of sacrifice, of humility, of love. 
We are seeking to emulate those things. And this was the fundamental purpose of the entire love feast event. And it is a tragedy that it has been diminished to handing out crackers and juice at the end of a service in most churches once a month. And so we have the requirement that we be considerate of the, the, the nature of this event to make sure that we are worthy. Not in our own strength, but by the power of Christ in us. How do we become worthy? It says we should judge ourselves. You should, the Old Testament prophet says, consider your ways. Consider your ways. What is our way? If our way isn't a reflection of God's word, if it is not in accordance with its instructions, then our ways are wrong. I don't care how many churches practice them. I don't care how many centuries has been the tradition. If they are not in conformity with God's instructions, they are wrong. was often praised. They didn't mean to praise me. They thought it was a criticism. I was often praised as a young man for being an idealist. They always did it in very bad tones, but I don't know why they praised me in such bad tones. You're an idealist. Thanks. But that's how they came across. That's how they, and that's how they meant it. You can't do it that way. Well, I'm 55 now, not 25. And I got to tell you something. I'm more of an idealist now than I ever have been. Either we do it God's way, or we should stop doing it. We stop pretending that we're anything but a hidden reef, a spot, a blemish upon Christianity. And we discussed this extensively. We went through the whole book of 1 Corinthians that we're, we're going to see this and that we're going to conform. And that which keeps us from conforming is our own pride, our own arrogance. The love feast wasn't lost. The foot washing wasn't really lost because of culture. It was lost because we diminish and then we distort. We diminish events and then we distort other events. And so we come to God's word and we say, I want to examine myself before I participate in this. As a church, we should be examining ourselves. This letter of Corinthians wasn't written to a person. It was written to a church in Corinth, the whole church. That we as a church should examine ourselves. How are we doing this? And so um, we got come together, it says, um, wait for each other, eat at home if you have to, if you don't think there's going to be enough here, but don't ever come together for judgment. We come together for worship. Don't let our worship judge us because we have disregarded the requirements to come into the presence of God. Do not come in ill-prepared. Do not come in disregarding the expectations of God that somehow we can passively push this off onto someone else's plate. For God requires it of each of us. 
Well, the last phrase in verse 26 says, till he comes. And for the last 10 minutes or so, I want to talk about that. The love feast not only is a celebration of the past, it is not only a ministry of the present, it is a reminder and a harbinger of the future. And of course, we are referring to that which is described for us in Revelation chapter 19. I invite you to turn there. Revelation chapter 19. And when our enemies are destroyed in chapter 19, uh, verses 1 and, and uh, through 4, or 1 through 1 and 2, we come to verse 3. It says, Again, they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. You see it there? Have you made yourself ready? Not just being willing to come, to show up, but prepared. She didn't just come. The wife is made ready. Verse 8, And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said, These are the true sayings of God. I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Wow. It's all right there, isn't it? It's all encapsulated there. We come as a bride. What made us a bride was the finished work of Christ on Calvary's cross, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. We are the bride of the Lamb. We are coming to the Mary's Supper as the bride. We have been set apart and identified, and yet we come there clothed in something described as the righteous acts of the saints. This is the outworking of your faith, your righteous acts. And so we are Unfortunately, I think a lot of people are going to show up not very well clothed from this generation because we don't come prepared. There's no preparation of our thoughts, of our lives, of our families to worship. Remember, the love feast is supposed to be a picture of what we're looking forward to happening. I'm looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's on our dining room wall because every time we want to sit down to eat, we hope this is our last meal on earth. When Christ has come, for all things are ready. Can't wait. But I sure don't want our love feasts to look like the world's junk going on instead of what I'm expecting in heaven. When I get to heaven, I'm pretty sure this love feast is going to have some spectacular food and enough for everybody. And there's going to be enough seats for everybody. I'm pretty sure we're all going to be focused on one person. That's Jesus Christ, the groom. The love feast is not only commemorative of Christ. It is not only an exercise of our current Christianity. It is also a representation of our hope that we are awaiting the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we want this to be just a taste of that. And I'm not sure there's going to be green chili salsa in heaven. Probably not. So I'm not talking about tasting the food. I'm talking about tasting of the love for one another. that these spots destroy. And nothing 
is more disastrous to showing love than causing division. Just for the sake of division. We see it in the world, our world today. I mean, I don't even know. It's all manufactured, but what, are the, what is the world manufacturing through the media and government and other things? They're manufacturing division that really hasn't been there for decades. It's being manufactured in our midst. Why? Because Satan thrives in it. Violence thrives in it. Sin thrives in it. We dare not let it into our church. It is not what I'm expecting at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I'm expecting to be part of this bride. I want to come and having my righteous acts, um, clothing, some facet of it, a fine linen, clean and bright. I desire that. And it says, blessed are those who called, but also that are prepared. She has made herself ready. And I am convinced that one of the key ways that we should be making ourselves ready for heaven is by engaging in genuine worship in such things as a love feast. And, and it is shameful, just as much as it was shameful for the Corinthians to do it wrong, it was shameful for us not to do it at all, to abandon it wholesale. And then to distort what the communion table is meant to be for us. So we'll have another meal. Not next Sunday, because I won't be here. I don't want to miss it, because I'm not going to miss that one. <laughs> we'll have another meal. A week before Thanksgiving, we have a soup and salad. But we're also having another meal tonight, a spiritual meal. Come prepared. We're going to have a meal next Sunday morning. Come prepared. And I have said this to my, to my children, to the young people of our church, to college students. I've said it to you. 90% of what you get out of this message is built upon what happened last night. In your life. If you went to bed, if you were prepared to not just passively attend, but to participate in worship together with your brethren in Christ. This is how precious the love feast is. This is why doing it wrong or a not doing it at all is so horrific. And this is also why having someone pretending in the midst of it is so heinous a thing that Christ says, throw them out. Or they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because there will be no such individual at this marriage supper of the Lamb. I read to you the good part. The difficult part, of course, is Revelation 19, 1 and 2, where the destruction of Babylon, the harlot, came first. And we're not done eating, by the way. Mary's Supper of the Lamb is done. You get in chapter 19, and then you have the thousand-year reign. You have the Gog-Magog rebellion. You have the great white throne judgment. You have all those judgments of God. You have death and Hades thrown into the lake of fire along with all those who did not ha have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. And then we come down to chapter 21 and 22 and what do we find emphasized is that you will be as they talked about in Revelation chapter 2 in the promises to the churches. You'll be able to eat from the tree of life. You'll be able to drink from the river, from the fountain of life forever. And thus, from Genesis to Revelation, from the very first three chapters to the very last three chapters, four chapters, we are inundated with mealtime. And so let's take it 
more seriously. But remember, we are called to have joy, rejoicing, and gladness in it. Don't take it so seriously that you can't enjoy it. But enjoy it in the Lord. With one another, with your family, before the Lord, let us make it worship. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you again for your wonderful words of life, of hope, of remembrance of your provision for us. And Lord, our prayer is that you might find us better prepared day by day and week by week to worship you by maintaining our joy and our contentment, our thankfulness, our gladness of heart that we might truly bring you the praise and in the overflow of your great love for us that we might love and serve one another. Lord, where we have failed to do that well, forgive us. Where we have disregarded your requirements to be in your presence, Lord, we are ashamed. And we recognize that this is the spirit of a man of sin, not a man of God. And so, Lord, give us a spirit of righteousness to clothe ourselves in deeds of righteousness that come from faith in the one who showed us humility and love and sacrifice on a scale we cannot really comprehend. And Lord, help us as a church to do better. And that when we have done all, that we might still remember that we are unprofitable servants and have only done what is our duty to do. Christ Jesus' name, amen.